God, thank you for this morning, for our time together, for the word that you've given us. And um, Lord, I pray that as we read this text, that you would impress on our hearts uh, a self-examination that would allow us not just to see the degree to which we're doing or not doing the things on the text in the text, but whether, whether or not we're doing them out of love for you, from a heart of repentance. I pray that you'd impress on our hearts a self-examination that would now be able to, to really ask why we're doing these things. And um, Lord, point us to the cross as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Justin started his sermon a couple weeks ago sharing an ancient parable about a farmer and a horse that's become popular in some circles somewhat recently, I thought was very good. Not to be outdone by this myself, though, I will now begin my own sermon with an ancient parable about a farmer and a horse that has also become popular more recently. And if you've been a part of GLC in the past, um, like when we were at Andrew Riverside together, you've likely heard me tell this before. I think this text is so fitting with this ancient parable that it deserves a retelling. So if you've heard me say this before, I'm not asking that you just bear with me. Like, listen more deeply, more intently, and, and, and connect it to the text as we go, right? Um, we'll, we'll do that. And I should say, just in terms of fairness, Justin's may have actually been ancient. Mine is ancient in the sense that I can trace it back to Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. All right. So, the story is told of a king who ruled over everything in his land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to, to the king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched, and he discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land. I give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said to himself, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? The next day the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he said, he bowed low, and he said, My lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. He he stood there in silence. He could not move his feet, his mouth gaping in disbelief. The king again discerned his heart. So he addressed him again, saying, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The point of the parable is this, examining and evaluating ethics, okay, moral principles that govern a person's behavior. Examining those ethics is more complex than simply what you do versus what you don't do. Talking about sin in the life of the church is more complex than just talking about the things that you do or the things that you don't do. 
It involves that. It involves that. But it's not just that. It's more than that. And that's important because I think this is how most people talk about ethics in our time. It's how most churches talk about sin in our time. And people are concerned about ethics, you know, people in the wider world. If you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of Christianity, you're not sure what you think about the Scriptures, you likely are here with a high concern for ethics. There's a high concern for morality and ethics and justice among those who are skeptical of the Christian faith. I've shared this before. I've talked about it at length. But it used to be the case that the primary objection about Christianity from skeptics, even when I was in high school just 20 years ago, um, was that Christians tend to force their ethics on others. So it was generally understood, yeah, Christians are moral, but why can't I just live in an immoral way? Leave me alone in my immorality was kind of the idea. Uh, But today, the primary objection to Christianity is that Christianity itself is immoral. Um, There's a morality, in other words, that our culture has. Our culture has a set of ethics, and the church has a set of ethics. Um, We each have a set of principles that govern behavior. Christianity um, and the world both talk about, both tend to talk about ethics, mostly in terms, though, of what we do, of what we do. I think this is too bad because any conversation about ethics must also involve why we do something, not merely what we do. So um, as Christians approach the Word, as we approach the Word together on a Sunday morning, as you approach the Word in your reading, it's easy to think that the way that we grow as believers is to read the Scriptures and see this list of things that we're commanded to do, and like, we, like we have here in Zechariah 7, a list of things we're commanded to do, and a list of things that we're commanded not to do, and we're, we're, Christian growth is just about implementing the instruction, doing the, the good things, avoiding the bad things. And of course, we must implement the instruction. I don't want you to hear uh, me say it this morning and think, Jeremy's saying we don't have to do this stuff. We must implement the instruction. But just as important in our self-evaluating is reflecting on the question of why. Why we're doing it. Are we doing this thing that the Scriptures hold out for us to do because we think that by our efforts... God will do something for us, right? Are we doing this thing in order to show off our holiness to a certain extent so that we can demonstrate how much better we are than the world around us, how much better we are than other Christians? Are we doing this with this belief that if I do this, God will bless me? You know, um, are you giving yourself the horse? Are you doing these things with the expectation that by doing them, you can win the favor of God or others? You know, two weeks ago, I introduced this mindset as one of the two major reasons for disappointment in the Christian life. I said that Zechariah continues to confront those two mindsets, just like he does here. Um, The idea that if we're doing the right thing, God owes us. This is religious moralism. On the other hand, any question about ethics must also involve the source of our ethics. You know, like, who determines the set of principles to begin with? Who does that? Do you do that? Even when our efforts are driven by motives of compassion or concern for fellow man, how do we know what it is that we should do? How do we know that which is good versus that which is evil? How do we know that which falls into the category of like justice, a justice concern, and that which actually, even though I think this is justice and compassion, is actually not good for fellow man. It's not not helpful. It's actually sinful, right? 
Because there are many who, as a result of religious moralism, now attempt to be driven by compassion or concern for justice, but they're completely untethered to what God has said, instead becoming their own arbiters of truth, their own determiners of that which is good of evil, right and wrong, just and unjust, and it just compiles sin upon sin upon sin. And we wonder why. We wonder why. But Zechariah has something to say about both of this again. You know, He has something to say about the ethics of God's people in chapter 7. Coming out of exile, this is an important conversation. And he sets out to confront both moralism and you know, secularism, or in the case of this time, holding to the belief system of the day, right, um, as he does this. So after completing the series of visions that we saw on the front end, we now have a transition into a completely new section of the book by sharing a story from the history of pre-exilic Israel for the purpose of helping God's people understand both what they're called to do and why they're called to do it. So we see three sections in this narrative now um, in Zechariah 7. We see the setting in Israel, the specific issue that they're facing, the specific moral dilemma that they have. So the setting in Israel, the specific issue in the text, and the surprising inquiry that they then receive from the Lord. If you missed that, that's okay. We'll go back through it. So let's look first at the setting in Israel, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Okay, one of the ways that we as readers can discern that we're entering into a new section of text when we're reading places like Zechariah, because, you know, we preach through the scriptures in part here at GLC so that we can learn how to read our Bibles, right? And I think we wonder, like, how, how do we divide this up? How do we know when we're moving into a new section? Well, one of the ways that we know that here in Zechariah is um, that we see this dating formula repeated when a new section starts, right? So Zechariah first uses it in chapter 1, verse 1, because he wants us to know when these things are taking place. So he says, in the fourth year of, uh, he says, sorry, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Yiddo, saying, and then he talks about how the Lord came to him at that point in time and told him to go to Israel and call them to repentance, right? And then we see another section in which he has these night visions, and he begins this section by telling us when those night visions occurred. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Yiddo, saying, so now these night visions are taking place, a few months after he receives this initial call to call people to repentance. And then in these visions, these visions kind of spell out what that repentance looks like, okay? And now after completing the section of visions, Zechariah once again uses this dating formula so that we can see the setting in which this is taking place. And so all these dating formulas are both obviously different in a sense, but they're also the same. And what I mean is they're different in the sense that they obviously occur at different times. Zechariah wants them to know specifically when these events are taking place. In this case, the event's taking place two years after the night visions, right? So this is two years later. That has some significance for us to understand it. Uh, but they're also the same in terms of their overarching purpose, which is to, again, remind the reader of the context in which Israel finds itself. It's very intentional, very intentional. What's the setting in Israel, if you're taking notes? Foreign rule. The setting in Israel, as we've said before, is foreign rule. 
rule. We talked about this extensively in chapter 1. I I won't um, go into a ton of detail here. If you're curious to get more context and missed the first couple of sermons, I invite you to go listen there at our um, Apple podcast page, Spotify podcast page, and you can catch up that way. But Zechariah is using the months and years of the king of Persia, Darius, as the primary means of dating the prophecy. So he's talking to this group of exiles who've who've left Babylon and come into Israel. But he has to date these moments in time using the reign of Darius, okay? And in addition to that, he's using the Babylonian calendar. Shabbat, Kislev, these are like Hebrew transliterations of Babylonian calendar months. So it's, it's almost like this little, this little jab that gets people uncomfortable. That you, you can imagine someone reading this and cringing because it, it reminds them of something. Yes, they're coming out of exile, but it reminds them they're under foreign rule. They're not entirely free. As we've said before, you know, the shadow of exile still hangs over them. Having said that, this is now the third time they're hearing the dating formula. While it certainly still stings, it comes after these visions, which now Zechariah has assured them that God has not forgotten his promises. It comes after the conclusion of those visions that Justin preached on last week that talks about God fulfilling his promises. And so now, hope is held out to them in the midst of this foreign rule. Hope is held out that it won't always be like this. That God will be in their midst doing... um, fulfilling his promises. And that's evidenced by the reality that in the midst of this situation, the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, right? Like he doesn't just, he doesn't just leave people in this foreign rule, just fend for themselves. He doesn't leave people in these circumstances by themselves, but he speaks. God speaks. He reveals himself, all right? But, um, But that now brings us to the specific issue that's happening in the text. Because according to the date that Zechariah shares here, the word of the Lord now comes to Zechariah about two years after, like we said, two years after the night visions. And what that means is that the building of the temple is well underway at this point in time. It hasn't been completed yet, but it will be soon. It will very likely be completed soon. And so God's people have questions about how they they should proceed now in light of the fact that they're coming out of exile and the temple is almost complete. Okay, so verses 2 and 3. Now the people of Bethel had sent uh, Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years. So what's happening here? Well, essentially the city of Bethel, a city of some importance, and I wish we had more time to go into, uh, in in Old Testament history, it sits about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. It now sends a a delegation. Sherezer, Regamelech, and their men. These men are coming from Bethel. They're meant to represent the people, to speak on the people's behalf. And they're asking a question to the priests and the prophets. It mentions the house of the Lord. That's not to say that the house of the Lord is complete, but I do think it's meant to say the house of the Lord is nearing completion, right? And, and they're seeking an answer from the Lord to this question that they have. The text says the delegation entreats the favor of the Lord. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to spoil things. This is a foreshadowing. It shows some of their motivation for asking the question before it's even spoken. Let's just leave it at that for now. Um, So what do they ask? 
They ask this, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? What does this mean? Um, who's been weeping? Who's been abstaining? In the why in the fifth month? And uh, why have they been doing it? Right. So uh, the short answer is, the people of God have been weeping and abstaining from food. Some of your translations say mourning and fasting. That is correct. That's, that's what's happening here. The, um, the abstaining is from food. And this fast was probably instituted with the intention of mourning and remembering the destruction of the temple. We know that because of what's about to be said in the next few verses. We also know that because when, when did the destruction of the temple happen? In the fifth month. When, when are they fasting regularly for so many years? In the fifth month. So this is pretty straightforwardly uh, mourning and remembering the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. And I think the idea here now is that with the temple nearing completion, they're wondering if they should keep mourning and fasting for the destruction of the temple since the new one's going to be completed sometime soon, right? I think that's what's happening. Again, the question itself seems reasonable enough, but as we've noted, even the phrasing of what they're seeking to do and asking the question, entreating the favor of the Lord, it does give us a glimpse into some of their reasoning, some of their motivation in asking the question. And that's what the text now focuses on. So the setting in Israel, foreign rule, the specific issue they're asking about has to do with fasting and repentance. Fasting and repentance, okay? Specifically as it relates to the temple. But now they receive a surprising inquiry from the Lord. And the surprising inquiry comes in the form of three questions, three questions that have two aims, two targets, two functions, okay? Three questions. Um, let's look first at the questions, verses four through seven. Then the word of the Lord, Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? Okay. So again, I think the delegation from Bethel believes this question to be an understandable one. And you know, we might read it, um, as we'll see, we might read it and initially think, okay, this question makes sense. It's an understandable enough question. With the new temple nearing completion, do they really need to continue and fast and mourn related to the destruction of the old one? But, but I think the idea, the, the tone of the passage is that they're taken aback by this inquiry from the Lord. It's surprising to them because he now... He now cuts beyond, you know, what they're doing. Their question has to do with what do we do? And he wants to cut beyond that to, to their motives, to why they're doing it, okay? Um, he asks them first, three questions, right? First, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? He adds the seventh there, likely because of another event that took place in 586, but... Um, I don't think what he means by this is they've been fasting for 70 years necessarily. At some point over the last 70 years, they instituted this fast to remember the temple. We know that to be the case. But the Lord uses this phrase because he wants them to remember the reason the temple was destroyed, you know, the reason that they're in exile. You know, he wants to bring to their minds the words of the prophet Jeremiah when he wrote, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words... 
Behold, I will send to the king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years. So I think I have to bring to mind these 70 years. Why? Why was it that, according to Jeremiah, you know, according to all the prophets, why was it that you landed in exile to begin with? Because you did not listen to my word. Because you didn't listen to my voice. You decided that you knew better than what I said. You decided that the surrounding culture of the day had a better understanding of the word than, than of the world than, than my word had for you, than my word held out to you. So you became the judge and arbiter of what was right and wrong, true and untrue. So he wants to remind them that they didn't listen to his word, and he wants to ask them essentially why it was that they fasted to begin with, right? Was it because they were, were they fasting because they were genuinely repentant? Like, did they understand that they were sinners in need of salvation? Was it because they realized that God's word was their ultimate authority and they had failed to to listen, to hear, to obey? Did they do it for him, he's asking? Relatedly, and more to the point now, he, th- he answers that question by asking his second question. That's how I read this next question. He answers the first question by asking the second. He says, and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Okay, so this can be understood a couple of different ways. He, he could be talking about festivals and Passovers. And he could be saying, look, when you partake in these festivals... You're not actually partaking them to remember what I've done for you, but you're actually partaking of them to fill your own stomachs. That could be the case, but I think more likely this is what he's doing. I think more likely he's asking this rhetorically because I don't see any evidence that this is like Passover. I think the connection would have been clearer. I think he's, he's asking this rhetorically. He's, he's saying, listen, when you, when, you just, when you eat or drink every day, every day when you pick up food and put it in your mouth, you know, when you're not fasting, when you're just eating for nourishment so that you can, you know, work and move in the ways that you need to in order to survive, you know, like, are you not doing that for yourself? Right? Like, if you don't eat, it's not, it's not going to be very easy for you to get up and go out into the fields and labor and work so that you can survive, so that your family can survive. So, So don't you eat to a degree out of self-interest? What he's doing is he's saying, look, the way that you eat and the way that you fast are driven by the same thing. Your fasting isn't done uh, out of repentance. It's it's happening out of self-interest. You're giving yourself the horse. You're trying to do something for yourselves, not for me. The, The reason you should have been doing this is out of a legitimate mourning for your sin against me, a desire to turn from it and follow me, which is what Zechariah has been calling them to, since chapter 1. Instead, you did this in order to show off your holiness, in order to get something from me, in order to, 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 to be blessed, to have favor. It's, a, it's the exact opposite. Both the farmer and the nobleman did the same thing outwardly, but they had exactly the opposite motivations inwardly. That's the same distinction that the Lord wants to draw out here. It's like Jesus talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both come to pray, tax collector goes low, beats his breast, says, woe is me, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee stands up proudly to pray in front of everyone in the center of the room and 
points to the tax collector and says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this man and who went from there to his house justified? The tax collector. Because he wasn't focused on the outward nature of what he was doing to show others. He was focused on the inward reality. Like, why was he doing what he was doing. It was, it was from a spirit of repentance and brokenness. Jesus makes the same distinction in the Sermon on the Mount. On the one hand, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you might say, well, then what's he getting after these people in Israel for? They're mourning, and they're coming to him saying, you want us to mourn some more? Like, we, can go, we can go further. Like, you just tell us what to do. So, blessed are those who mourn, and here these people want to mourn, so what's the problem? The problem is their motives. Because before Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he gives us the reason that they're mourning, that they should be mourning to begin with. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what immediately precedes the mourning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, those who recognize that they're sinners in need of a savior, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the reason that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them is because of this recognition of spiritual poverty that then leads them to cry out in mourning for the Lord to do for them what they're unable to do for themselves. It's not just this outward show of fasting and mourning that God desires, desires, but rather He wants to know why you're mourning and fasting. Is it out of a brokenness? Is it, is it out of a crying out to God to rescue you? Or is it to show off how righteous you are in order to get something from Him? You see the difference? Do you love God or do you love His stuff? You know? Are you crying out to Him to save you or are you trying to manipulate Him to get something you want? Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who are mourning and fasting. And He describes it in hilarious terms. You know? He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others, right? This is such a perfect description of doing something potentially good outwardly. Like, this is why it's not just what you do. This is why ethics can't just, be, can't just be talked about in terms of what you do. Here's a perfect example of doing something potentially good outwardly with selfish motives inwardly, you know? They fast and mourn by disfiguring their faces as a show. So Jesus continues, Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Don't let others know you're doing this. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who's in secret will reward you. Why? Because, why does he reward you? Not because you brought him a stallion, you know. But because out of your love for him, your desire to know him, you come to him with empty hands. Okay, um, it's interesting because you start to think, what are some like very m- contemporary, modern examples of when we tend to do this the most? And I know I throw all kinds of shade on this every week now, and I'm sorry. I'll probably keep doing it. But I think the obvious one is social media. <laughs> okay, listen. Um, I think if Jesus is around today, he wouldn't be saying, and this is, direct quote from something Justin Weavers wrote a while back, but he wouldn't be saying, but when you pray, make sure you type it on Facebook for all to see, you know? And I think that there's truth to this. Like, there are Christians, you know, all of us, all of us fall prey to this. All of us fall fall prey to performance. I fall prey to performance, right? And so it can be very easy for us to, like, want to show the world how much we get it. And so something bad happens, 
and you know, the first inclination or something that we feel like needs to be spoken up about or whatever, and the first inclination is to go on Facebook and like disfigure our faces for the, everyone to see. Disfigure our faces with our post. You know? Why? So that people can see how much we get it. And how in the, maybe what, what should we be doing? Finding, finding real ways to contribute to the problem, you know, like love and um, others in real, real, actual, tangible ways, rather than the hashtag activism kind of thing. But I think there's a, there's a way in which we can just so completely disfigure our faces rather than, like, going to the Lord in private. Like, why does the world need to know the gate, okay, right? So, okay. So he's asking the people here in Zechariah, who are you doing this for exactly? And then he asks a rhetorical question to answer that question for them, saying they're actually doing this out of self-interest, not repentance. And finally, he asks, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? In other words, isn't this the very reason you were put in exile to begin with? You know, there's this theme throughout the Old Testament in which you imagine um, the frustration of the Lord and the prophets in saying the same thing to the people over and over again and not being heard. Isn't this the same thing, right? Like, we just got out of exile. Like, some of you are still coming. Some of you just arrived here. We've just set foot. The temple isn't even done yet. And are we really doing this again? Ultimately, by only focusing on the, you know, the outward appearance, not examining the heart, you are in the same situation you were in before, not listening to God's pro- promises, not listening to his prophets, not listening to the nature of the problem that you actually have, because you don't want to believe it. Right? Did, didn't Isaiah write this in, in the very first words of his prophecy, is what, is what Zechariah is saying, is what the Lord is saying through Zechariah? Right? Like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, it starts. What to me is, is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Like, well, you might say, well, time out. Aren't they commanded to bring these sacrifices? Like, isn't that something that God wants for them to do? And the, the thing is, yeah. But we also have to talk about the reason they were bringing it. And, and the Lord says here, the problem is they're bringing all these things, but they're vain. They're not... They don't understand the reason they have to make sacrifices to begin with has to do with the nature of their problem, right? They're just doing it because they think it's the right thing to do, and then they're growing pride, prideful, right? The Lord, through Isaiah, said, you're doing these things that you claim are for me, but your hearts demonstrate they're actually for you. So what are they to do instead? Isaiah says, starting in 16 of chapter 1, wash yourselves, Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We're going to have more to say on this in a bit. But Isaiah is essentially saying the same thing that Zechariah is saying here in chapter 7. God's telling them once again, you're not listening to my words. Did not Isaiah say this? Did not Jeremiah say this? And that brings us to the two functions of these three questions. Like what is the Lord intending, to, what's he aiming at? What's his target here with these three questions? All right, two motives, or two uh, functions. 
starting in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. So, you know, your way of understanding God in this world has been so full of self-interest, like your eyes have been so much upon yourself that you don't realize that like, this is a transformed heart that then actually makes you other-oriented. Right? You're focusing on you and what you get rather than on the Lord and therefore on others. Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. There's a one another orientation of the transformation of the heart. If that happens, you're not going to oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another. Don't worry about like this show of holiness while in the meantime, this is how you're treating one another, right? Is what he's saying. But listen to verse 11. Tragic. But they refuse to pay attention. Listen to this. There's actually four responses that they have to the Lord's word. They refuse to pay attention. They turn a stubborn shoulder and stop their ears that they might not hear. Oh, sorry. <laughs> they refuse to pay attention. They turn a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears, and then they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts is sent by a spirit through the form of prophets, lest they should know that he's spoken. So I think, right, so... On the one hand, this is targeting the moralists. Because I do think there are many in the church today, and I think this is something that we all wrestle with. This is something that I wrestle with, right? We want to perform and we, we fool ourselves, we trick ourselves into thinking that we're better than other people, right? That um, I'm able to do this because of me rather than others, you know, as opposed to others, you know. And so it, makes us, it can make us super judgmental and it makes us not caring and we essentially let people sit in their bad situation because we think that they earn it and I earn this or whatever, right? Like there's a, there's a creeping motivation. Like even if we're not, we wouldn't say it that way. We usually we wouldn't say it that way, but it happens in, in the human heart. At the same time, so it targets that moralism in our hearts, but at the same time it targets this secularism because listen, like um, there are many who just, re- they, they think the answer to finding justice is rejecting the, rejecting the scriptures, rejecting the word of God. And, and, and it's like, while I think verses 8 through 10 have a lot to say to Christian moralists, and there's a lot of conviction and, and repentance that needs to happen in the life of the church, I think verses 11 and 12 have, have a lot to say to the modern deconstruction movement. Because in my experience, what's happening, they refuse to pay attention, they turn a stubborn shoulder, they stop their ears that they might not hear. Why? They make their hearts diamond hard. Why? Lest they, lest they should have to hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts sent by his spirit through the form of prophets. Right? It's easier if we don't have to know that this comes from God and if I can think of myself as judge over his words. But it doesn't, it doesn't land us in a good place. What happens? What happens? What's the result? Um, okay, so therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. There's, there's consequence. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that had not known Thus, the land was left desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So this surprising inquiry has two purposes, two targets, two aims. Hits two targets, both foundation and reason. Foundation and reason. He wants them to see, first of all, that the reason that they've done what they've done is misguided, but he wants them to see, second of all, that the foundation for what they should do comes from him rather than them. 
comes from him and no one else, right? In other words, first this target hits the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the religious moralists who put on this outward show of personal holiness in order to get something from God and others, but they do not possess a transformed heart inwardly that would allow them to, enable them to show kindness and mercy, pleading the case of the widow, caring for the orphan, the poor, the despised, the outsider. Why? As we said, their entire worldview is centered on them. The reason they take holiness seriously is to show how great they are, not to care for others. The reason they take holiness seriously is so that they can better secure their rights, not that they might think about how they can lay their rights down for a gospel hearing to others. They claim to take God's word seriously by putting on this outward show, but by doing that, they show how little they think of God's word. They actually rip God's word apart. They ignore the primary teaching of God's word related to the human heart and our deep shared need for a savior because of sin. They ignore, they ignore God's teaching. And that's exactly what we find here in Zechariah, that people are unable to set their own moralistic pride aside. If they're doing something, it must be because of how good they are. And if the poor and the widow over there are struggling, it must be because of how bad they are. Even more than that, it leads them to disdain the widow so much so that they take advantage of her. Because what is she? You know, I'm, I'm here because I'm, I'm so good. This is, where this, this is where this leads us. I'm here because I'm so good, so what is she? So doesn't matter if I, if I continue the oppression, if I take advantage. So Zechariah takes aim at this religious moralism, and that's, by the way, exactly what was happening among the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Okay, so Zechariah takes aim at this religious moralism and says God wants no part in it. It's a show. It's a sham. It's a smokescreen. It's totally fake. It's totally fake, right? There's a problem with the reason they do what they want to do. And this is where I just want to say real quickly. Um, I'm not, you know, we're not, I'm not saying like, okay, so when we talk about mercy ministries and justice in the life of the church, we need to both talk about personal salvation and we need to talk about justice. Both things need to be talked about. The gospel for personal salvation and we need to talk about justice. So let me just clarify, we do need to talk about both. We do preach both. Both are in the scriptures, but that's not what I mean when I talk about gospel-centeredness. You know, like, what I mean is, you know, not simply both the gospel for salvation and a command to justice and mercy. It's that the gospel shapes us to become more merciful. It's that a recognition of my sin, a recognition of the human heart, the problem with the human heart, and seeing what Jesus has done that I could never do actually is what moves us forward in justice and mercy. And without that, we're totally cut off from what we need. All right, but second, so it speaks to religious moralism, but second, Zechariah focuses on the reason we know what constitutes justice and injustice. We know because God has spoken. You know, what's the source? What's the foundation? What's the authority? Because the problem occurs when we decide not to listen to God's word. You know, when we decide that we can just be our own authority. When we, we decide that we can serve as the foundation for good and evil, just, justice and injustice. And here's the problem. On the one hand, you have many in culture who, who ignore, I think, justice and caring for the poor and the oppressed. And, and, and there's a show of religious moralism in which they see themselves as better than everyone else. But on the other hand, you have many who cry out for social justice, but they've cut themselves off from the very word that commands us to care for the poor and the needy. The scriptures at best are seen as secondary, usually tertiary or even beyond that, rather than the scriptures directing us in terms of caring for the justice that we, so, that we claim to seek. And, and this is bad. This is, this is not for our good. This is bad for us. Because it means that we're yelling about what everyone needs to do, but we have no authoritative word to direct us to do it. It's just our opinion. 
So why are we surprised when, it has no, when our opinion has no authority? It's like I've used this illustration before, but it's true. In the deck household, and, you know, there's some sickness in the house, so they're watching from home. And, okay. um, but in the deck household, sometimes what happens, like every week, usually, a child, you know, I'm reading a book upstairs, and there's an argument that breaks out. And you can hear it. And then you start hearing the footsteps toward you. You know what I'm talking about. And um, so, you know, you're getting ready to, to judge, <laughs> to bring the judgment. And um, so somebody comes, and they're like, so-and-so is doing this thing, and, 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 you know, I keep telling them to stop, and they won't. And, I, and if it's a bad thing, which sometimes it is, right, say, I say to them, mom and dad tell you to, t- tell them, tell them, mom and dad say to stop, right? So what happens? Then you hear the footsteps back downstairs, and you, he- you hear someone yell, Stop it! Stop! Then they come back up. They won't listen to me. It's like, okay, did you say mom and dad say stop? Or did you just say stop? Well, I just said stop. Why? Why? Because there's a sense in which you want to be the one, you know, you want to have control. The kids want to be the one with authority. They want to be able to tell one another what to do. But why would, they, why would another kid listen to another kid? That's not the way it works. You don't listen to your siblings. I never listen to my sibling tell me what to do, right? They have no authority over me. What is that, right? So then they go back downstairs. Mom and dad say this, and now, okay, I have to reconsider because that's a higher authority. And so, I, you know, there's a certain sense in which that's the case here. Why should anyone listen to what any one person in the midst of all of human history thinks about what we should do? Like someone's opinion. Everyone has an opinion. Like by deciding that the Bible doesn't really speak for God and isn't really authoritative because it says these things over here that we don't like to hear in our current time period, We've cut ourselves off from the good news that we need in order to to actually live justly. When you throw shade on the scriptures, but then shout about the need for justice, you're actually sawing off the branch that you're sitting on, you know? It's actually an act of mercy and justice to proclaim the word of God. All right. I was talking to Patrick Ray, lead pastor of Northside Neighborhood Church, a church that we sent and planted out of gospel life a few years ago. And we were talking about the importance of ministries of mercy and justice. And this is what he said. He was talking to me about Mark chapter 6, verse 34. So let me read that. Jesus saw a large crowd and had compassion. Mercy, compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. And this is what Patrick said. He said, Jesus had compassion on the people. And his compassion led him to teach them. Teaching God's word is an act of mercy. This ministry of mercy is the primary calling of Jesus' church. And I think this is something that that is very insightful. It's something that we often miss. We think you have preaching ministries and mercy ministries. You have ministry of the word where I can bring the word to my friend and talk to them about the gospel, and you have mercy ministries. And it's like, yes, you do have mercy ministries, right? But, But the primary mercy ministry is letting people know who God is, what he has done, that we might know him. That's, that is like, the greatest act of mercy possible. And by the way, that act of mercy then stirs all kinds of other acts of mercy. Yes, this ministry of mercy is the primary calling of Jesus' church, the proclamation of the word, but it's not the only one, right? Because as that gospel is proclaimed, what should it lead us to want to do? It should, it should make Emma and Ellie's phone ring off the hook because we're all so excited about mercy ministries, which is, they're the deacons over the mercy ministries 
at Gospel Life. We're, we're also excited about mercy ministries at our church. That, that, that we're just, we're, we want to be involved in that, right? So like it, it moves us forward. So we're called to various things as believers. We're called to cry out to the Lord in repentance. We're called to depend on the Lord in prayer. We're called to seek his face in times of fasting. We're called to mercy ministries in the life of the church. But in all this, two things need to be clear. Our motivation for doing it and the ultimate source or authority that directs it. Right? Sin can't just be defined as what we do. It has to include our reasons for doing it. In other words, yes, that quote from Isaiah, what, what was it that the people were supposed to do instead? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Right. But unless we understand that apart from Christ, no one's good. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, the Apostle Paul says. Right? Unless we get that, unless we understand that we're completely dependent upon God to do what we could never do for ourselves, unless we understand that we can't cleanse ourselves, that one of the purposes of the law that Isaiah is repeating there is to show us that we actually can't make ourselves clean, that we're reliant on God to do that which we can't do, if we don't get that, if we don't understand and believe that, then all of our efforts to do good things will only compile sin upon sin. But the good news that Zechariah holds out and points forward to is that there is one who will come. Next week is the first week of Advent. And Ben Reese is going to preach through chapter 8, which gives us this vision of, you know, the, the very first vision of like this one who is to come. So he's about to point us to this one who is to come, who did just that, did for us what we could never do for ourselves, living the life that we should have lived but failed to live, dying the death that we deserve to die, so that now by recognizing our spiritual poverty, crying out to him to save us, we can have life in him, and this new life is no longer centered on us. It has an other-orientedness about it. We, wanna, we, we, we want uh, to please our Lord. We, that, that spills over into others. There's an other-orientedness reflected in it, and that other-orientedness is reflected here at the table in which we all come to the same table with the same need, no one spiritually more advanced than another, all in the same need of, of Christ's body, broken and his blood spilled. And so this meal is a meal for believers. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, we invite you to come forward and take these elements back to your seat. If you're not a believer, if you're a skeptic of Christianity, we welcome you to be here. Participate by observing, asking questions. There's a Q&A following this. I invite you to come and Talk to me about the text, um, but I invite you forward to take the elements back to your seat.